I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hi there. I'm Jeremy Scheinwald, host of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. VFA is an organization that is committed to revitalizing America's cities and communities through entrepreneurship. Today on our show, we have... Will Nathan, the co-founder and chairman of HomePolish.com, an interior designer startup bringing top decorating talent into homes and offices across the country. Trained as a mathematical economist, Will began his career in finance and closed over $1 billion of new media and software mergers and acquisitions. After discovering a passion for coding, and you'll hear today that Will is an autodidact, he taught himself to code, he switched gears and joined BuzzFeed, where his work as a front-end software developer was featured in Mashable, AdAge, and Digiday. Today, with partner Noah Santos, Will Nathan has built Home Polish into a platform that serves hundreds of designers in a dozen cities and is growing quickly. You can find Home Polish in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, and many more cities are on the map. It's our pleasure today to interview Will Nathan. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So uh, we're, here, we're here with Will Nathan, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about home polish. But first, let's hear about his path uh, to entrepreneurship, starting with what was seemingly a pretty entrepreneurial experience at Wake Forest, uh, where you were a mathematical economics major. That's right. And uh, Okay, I got that right. Um, and uh, you were the CFO of Knowledge to Work. Um, can you tell us about, about that organization? Yeah, so it was a very interesting program within Wake Forest's technology department, and they were actually one of the first schools to give everyone a laptop. So they took technology very seriously, and at that time, this was 2002, um, you know, websites were still a very big deal, and it was expensive to make them. So they created a small organization within Wake Forest to build websites for local businesses, and then they had the students run it. So it was a small business within the tech department of Wake Forest. And was that what, did that stoke the fires of entrepreneurship in you at all, or that I mean, it was you were the CFO, so you, next you went to banking. Uh, so which way did that uh, which way did that that lead you that experience? Well, I think it was it was great seeing what happens when you put a bunch of people in a room together and try to make something out of it, and and it was a lot of fun. So I really liked all the different aspects of it, and the the finance one just naturally that was my that was what I was driving towards throughout college. And so it made sense for me to explore it. But I was also actually a graphic designer on the team as well um, and, and managing a whole bunch of different projects. So it was, it, was a, it was a very good experience. It's like entrepreneurship light. And then you, so from there, you, you, you graduated and you went on to Wachovia, I believe? That's right. And uh, so what, what drew you to the financial field? So I was really inspired. I, you know, Going back a long time, I've always liked business, even before I really knew what business was. Uh, and I kind of explored the different elements of it. And when I was a, you know, an early teenager, I used to follow the stock market, put all my bar mitzvah money into the market. 
you know, tripled my money and then lost everything. And so I, th- I think, you know, th- that experience really showed me the power of the markets. And I was just fascinated about how you could, con- you know, you could work with and make decisions and have such an impact um, with very little capital and be able to take part in all of the amazing interactions and businesses that are happening around me. Okay, so you so you went to banking, which is, um, and you spent four years there during like pretty pretty tough years on Wall Street. Well, I saw the whole spectrum. So my first year, I was only at Wachovia for one year, uh, and then I got uh, poached away to go to San Francisco to work at Union Square Advisors with a bunch of ex-credit Swiss guys. And so my experience was a little bit different in that I saw, I tasted both sides of it. So my first year or so were the high fly, the, the end of the high flying days of banking. And so, you know, everyone was getting these massive bonuses and, we, you know, we were working in Charlotte. And so we were getting paid New York wages in Charlotte as 22 year olds. So that was a, a really interesting experience. Um, and then everything just blew up. Uh, and luckily, because I was working for a small firm that was growing and that that was building a name for itself, I actually got a lot more responsibility. And we brought in deals, so you know I actually weathered the storm very well during that time period when all my friends, almost every one of my banking friends, got let go. And so you so you survived all the carnage uh, on Wall Street, and and then you walked away. But I want to ask you about something before we get to the decision to walk away, which is. While you were a, a, an analyst or associate, I guess, maybe during, during both those periods, you were already kind of laying the groundwork for your entrepreneurial career. You, you, you'd started a, uh, you, you'd, you had a startup going, um, which to my understanding, you know, uh, being an analyst or an associate is, is double, a, double a full-time job. Tell us about the startup, but where did you find the time and the energy for it? So I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've always enjoyed is time management and figuring out how I can squeeze more into less. And basically when I got promoted from analyst where I was working, you know, massive, insane hours, I think I would count it over a hundred and it really was over a hundred hours a week. And then I got promoted and I suddenly had people under me and I could, you know, make my own systems and and really do banking in a different way that freed up more time. And I basically just continued to work analyst hours. I just finished my associate work and then went home at night and weekends and Cranked on on Brilliantly, which is the the app that I was building at the time. So tell tell us about Brilliantly. What 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 uh, what was Brilliantly? So <clears throat> it is a list building tool for getting what's in your head out into the world. So that <laughs> that was the vision. I haven't given that pitch in a while. Um, <laughs> but you know what I really wanted to do. I had this grand vision of trying to take a look at the things in your life that you don't realize you're not doing. And so, you know, a real quick example is, is I love strawberries, but I never buy them because the grocer has no incentive to put them on sale. So, you know, I was trying to make an app that would let me know that I like strawberries at the right time when they're in season and really think about all of the thousands of things in your life that are like that. And it, it was a it was an interesting concept and if you you know, this is the group on days. So if you scale it up and you have thousands of people saying what they want to do, I'm like, this is better than Google because they're searching for things in Google, but here they're telling you what they want already and when they want it. So the vision was there, but unfortunately the reality of, of that business is is it, it you know, the cost to acquire the users was infinite because no one wanted to use it, um, <laughs> because I was essentially <laughs> competing against a piece of paper, um, and and the revenue per user was zero or negative, and so you know that took me. That was advice that I that I um, that I received, but I just didn't take to heart because I was like, well, if I have the vision and I work hard at it, you know, I, and I had a co-founder Hyun who was also in it with me, and you know, we we just assumed that if we just built something and everyone would come and use it and love it, and you know, that didn't really happen. 
So that was the, ma- the mathematical economist in you is what is what drove that uh, that strawberry example. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, how did you know when it was time to to call it quits with with brilliantly? And I mean, how, what kind of progress did you have? And 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 how did you know when it was time to call it quits? So um, we had launched the app. We had you know a few hundred very dedicated users. Um, it was really inter- interesting because one side of it is obviously the money. I was d- putting in all the money myself. You know, I could have bought a nice sports car with what I put into that business. Um, but it got to the point when I realized these facts about about business and about economics, you know, which I should have known before because I was an economics major. But you know, it's very different when it's your vision and your baby, and you're trying to grow this thing, and you just think that it's going to work. And but I definitely reached a point where I just knew. I knew that this wasn't going to work out, that I had to reevaluate, that I had to make some changes in my life. You know, This was a time when I was living in San Francisco, and I knew I always wanted to live in New York City, but I had put that on hold for the startup and because a lot of the, you know, the great banking contacts and people I was working with were out in San Francisco. And I was like, okay, it's time. You know, this isn't going to work out. And I kind of just let it set sail, um, which was, and ironically, uh, while it was sailing out into the ocean with no direction and no, you know, nobody at the helm of it, it actually won PC Mag's, you know, one of their awards for note-taking apps after I had already let it go. Um, Did that cause you to reconsider at all? No, no. I, I, I knew it. I knew that that was the right decision. It was just kind of funny because I would have given anything for any kind of recognition, you know, at that time. Which, when you're starting a new business, there's very little of that to go around. Was your you mentioned you had a partner? I think you said his name was Hyun. Hyun Lee, yeah. So uh, was was he also prepared to let it go? How did how did you guys navigate that together? So I think it, it was a difficult pro, you know time for us. Um, we were also living together in the same apartment, um, and you know he was working on the development, uh, the back end development, and a few other tasks. And we also had another guy, Ed Song, who was in this with us, also kind of crashing on the couch in the same place. So it was very much the startup, you know, the startup ethos. And, you know, a lot of this was, you know, we sat down and we really took stock, Um, you know, and we decided that this was this was this was the time to make, you know, to make these hard decisions. And really just we wanted to do it the right way and not be forced to do it in a way that would have been rushed or that, you know, would have been the wrong the wrong way to tie everything up. So did, did, did the end of Brilliantly co- coincide with the end of banking or were you still at the bank for a little while longer? So there's a brief time period where I had left. Um, okay, so I, I, I was done with Brilliantly and then I had moved from San Francisco to New York City within Union Square Advisors. And I have to say, they were extraordinarily supportive of this entire journey, which is very rare for an investment bank. That's amazing. And so, you know, I have nothing but amazing things to say about Union Square Advisors. And they gave me the flexibility to really figure this out on my own. I think, you know, part of it was because I was, at that point, I was, I was you know, cranking out deals and, and doing a lot of things that I think were, were helping a lot of people on, at the firm. But they were, you know, that was, that was an amazing gift they gave me to give that flexibility. And so I was in New York City and, you know, at that time um, I I knew I wanted to do startups, but I didn't know who I wanted. You know, I knew I needed a partner and I knew I needed the right idea because um, Hyun had, had gone back to, to take another job. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this again until I have those two things, but I really like startups. And, you know, through the process of brilliantly, I actually taught myself how to code, um, which at the time, with that before things, the amazing Flatiron schools of the world, is just reading hundreds of pages of books. And, you know, there's no better motivator than when you're spending your own money every week to go learn how to do something. So I became a decent front end developer. Um, and so I was like, well, I have this skill and I really like it and I want to go into startups and, you know, I, and I wanted to see where that could take me. So I just made a list of 
my of course I made a list using brilliantly of <laughs> of my five very rich startups in in New York and BuzzFeed was on that list and and luckily through Chris Paik at at Thrive Capital he made an introduction to to BuzzFeed and they were a little bit you know didn't really know what to do with me because they're like well why do you want to take a job where you get paid 75% less you don't have a a CS background. You've never coded professionally, and I was like, I want this. I, I, you know, I really think BuzzFeed is cool. I want to work at a startup. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll, you can not pay me anything. I think that also was part of the mindset. Is, is I just didn't care about the money at that time, which is also a fortunate thing that I got from banking is that I had stashed away enough so I could really focus on what was going to take me to the next level. Um, and then you know they gave me a test. I did well, and and that's how I got started working at BuzzFeed. And, and this was before BuzzFeed was BuzzFeed, right? BuzzFeed was still you know the, they had raised money. They you know they were very well known in the, in the tech circles. But I had identified them through brilliantly as a quote unquote competitor. When in reality they were not a competitor, but they were also <laughs> making lists of things, and I was making lists of things. So I said you know that's how I knew about them. And really when I when I left finance to go work at BuzzFeed, I said hey I need a month to detox. I'm going to Costa Rica. And when I got back. Suddenly, BuzzFeed was a thing, you know, and it became much more of a thing as I as I was working there. And then NPR showed up, and then you know, the the things I was coding were showing it up in you know Ad Age and Digiday, and I was like, whoa, this is really fun. And the culture was really amazing, um, you know, what Jonah was was building and Mark Wilkie, who was this, the CTO, and he really, you know, he he kind of did a lot for me in terms of helping me see that you know there is a a life that's not finance where you don't have to drive everything. You know, to the hill to to create something amazing and to have a good life. So, so did you? You found yourself less compulsive. Uh, I don't. I mean, that in, a, in, a, in an entirely comparable, complimentary way, uh, when you were at BuzzFeed, you were able to find a little more balance in your in your life. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I remember the first day I got there, I was like, "Can I tweet that I am now working at BuzzFeed?" And they're like, "They gave me this look. They're like, <laughs> That's oh, what we do. Of course you do that.'" Yeah. And you know, in, in finance, you know, it, everything is talk to the compliance officer, which is understandable because they have a bit. You know, there actually are stringent laws about what you can say publicly. But it was a slow process of realizing that you know. I can kind of, you know, let my hair down, and as you know, you audience can't see, but I'm completely bald. But <laughs> that that at that time, and so um, so that was a really great experience for me to kind of see what life could be like with a steady coding job um, on a team I really liked and a company I believed in. And did I, so you were there for nine months. Were you able to? Were you done the culture shock by the time you were uh, you were there for nine months? Yeah, yeah. So so I I you know luckily they threw me into into the fire, and I got to build some amazing products. So I was working on on dashboards of the vir- you know, the viral story dashboards, and my favorite was a full page takeover that you could turn the dial and send BuzzFeed back in time to different decades, which took over the entire homepage for a few oh, wow. weeks. Uh, and it was a, it was a great it was a great um, opportunity for me to just show off my skills, but also just to say like, hey, you heard this BuzzFeed thing? Like, go to the homepage and you know you can see what I've been building with the, with the team. So you were while you were at BuzzFeed, you were. I, I, well, okay. Home polish is, is somewhat fortuitous, I guess. So why don't, you, why don't you just tell us about the the renovation that spawned home polish first? Yeah, of course. So, um, so I had purchased a, a apartment in Chelsea, a tiny little five hundred square foot apartment that I, I still to this day think is beautiful. It's got skylights, it's pre war, it's got a brick wall, and no furniture. So I was literally just sitting in the living room. Um, on a black folding chair, <laughs> and and that was really all I had. And but I had a chunk of change, and I was like, well, I own this place. I want to make it beautiful. I don't know 
you know, I don't know where to start. I, I don't know how to get the best price for things, where to put the things, you know, how to how to even find where to where to buy the things. But I knew I had style. I had my Pinterest boards. I, I really wanted to make something amazing. And um, and so I went out and I tried to find a designer and I found the process to be, you know, either they wouldn't respond or they were very condescending. You know, I got told to go to Ikea for my 30K budget. I got told to, you know, that well, I can't help you, but my brother's an artist and maybe he'll talk to you. And I was like, what What, what other business do you show up at with that kind of money? And they're like, yeah, you, just no, just go away, sorry. Um, and so through a friend, I actually met Noah, who is running around town as a one-man shop with a new hourly rate model, which is the seed of what Home Polish was to become. Um, and he walked in, threw his bag down on the couch, and was like, this is amazing, let's go, this is how I charge, we're gonna make this place look great. So just just for just to, to clarify for for people who are listening, hourly rates are somewhat unusual in this business. It's usually based on some sort of markup, correct? That's right. So especially back in in 2012 when we started, every you know the interior design industry has historically been very opaque and very difficult to understand what you're buying and what things cost. And what Noah and I realized was that the world doesn't operate that way anymore. If you want to get a table, you can find it on on West Elm or you know the idea that you could have some kind of information that a client wouldn't have about products to then charge them more we just saw that as not being a possibility in a few years and and now it's actually moving in that direction so it's been a few years since we started it and hourly models are more popular now than they were at the time but that was really the you know the impetus to get the designer's skill set and value on the same page as the client whereas before you know they weren't because a designer they the more that you spent the more that they made as far as commissions and with hourly rates that's not the case so you and Noah are working on your on your home reno what uh, what flipped the switch between him him being your designer to you being his business partner right so you know i was having a blast at buzzfeed uh, coding and and really being a part of that culture and What's interesting is that an interior design project is a very good test for whether you can work well with someone as a as an entrepreneur and a business partner. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, we we went through contractors, we went through paint colors, we went through all the decisions where you know we went through hundreds of emails together, and and really it was like when you know we figured out what our strengths were through that process. And Noah had always you know come to me and said, "Hey, I want to build something bigger. I think this is a bigger idea." And I I always been like, "Yeah, maybe," but I'm really happy at Buzzfeed, and you know, let's just keep talking. And then. Really, the turning point came when we finished my place, and this is something that that it, you know, even just thinking about it makes me happy because I realized for the first time what interior design can do for your life, and I had never experienced an emotion like that. And so when we were talking about, it, I was like, this, I'm, I have a better time relaxing. I have a better time when my friends are over. You know, this expresses my personality. You don't have to settle for crumbling furniture, you know, anymore. And I was like, we got to bottle this feeling. We got to take this to more people because I know there's more designers like yourself who are young, scrappy, emerging, and talented. And there's more people like me who have money to spend but just don't want to don't want to do it unintelligently and want to be frugal but also want to build what's on their Pinterest board and on, you know, in magazines. And there's just no way to connect those two. And so then we're like, okay, we got to do this. Uh, and actually, you know, our first iteration of this was not what Home Polish is today. The first iteration was um, building ready-made room plans. So we were going to make these PDFs where no would source furniture, and then we we would sell them. Nobody was interested in that. Um, but very quickly, we pivoted into you know Noah was like, well, I got these clients, and I was like, okay, well, I can you know we can just you know hack this together on Trello and 
and just like do this and Google Docs. And so that's really how it started is, is Noah would take on clients and then the funds from that would come to pay business expenses and then I would code and make this, you know, the sign up flows and the very basic site. Uh, and, and then we just took it from there. Uh, but, and BuzzFeed is exploding at this time. I mean, how, do you, how do you walk away from, from a BuzzFeed uh, that is becoming exactly what you anticipated it would be when you were making your list? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, it was a very difficult decision, and I think it was one that was personal for me, and I really checked the boxes of, of what I was talking about earlier, which is, do I have the right person, and is this the right idea? And do I want to take this gamble? Because we, weren't, we were making money, but we certainly weren't making enough to you know, pay ourselves anything. But I think when you encounter something that could change your life and you, you have that emotion and you just see in front of you the possibilities, there's, you know, it's a pretty easy decision, right? And especially given, you know, my personality, which is very much, you know, I got to take these, anything that comes in front of me, it's really up to you whether you take that opportunity because the opportunities will show up and it's, it's you know, it's not always just the opportunity showing up that matters. It's like, when do you want to pull the trigger and do it? I always feel like when I, <clears throat> pardon me, when I talk to entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting something, I'm always like, is it keeping you up at night? You know, do you feel like you must do this? I mean, is that the kind of compelling feeling you had, like you were wasting time doing something else? Yeah, well, for, it was a little bit more difficult because I, I definitely enjoyed my job. Right. Um, and so, but I, but I did, you know, I, I had signed up for and I had committed to being a front-end developer. And, and I was doing, you know, I was doing some interesting things and I was growing as a front-end developer, but, you know, my... My mindset was in the long run, I've got to use so many different parts of my brain, and if I don't, I'm eventually going to be unhappy. And uh, that's what entrepreneurship really does for someone: is you basically get to be, you know, a, a digital marketer and a and a lawyer and an accountant and a coder and all these different aspects. And that's how I love to use my brain, basically. And I was like, "Yep, this makes sense. I can actually go do this, and we're going to make something." This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So would it be fair to say that, that, that your partnership with Noah works really well because there's a really natural division of responsibilities? Absolutely. And, you know, as we've grown, it's been interesting how that has, has, has changed and evolved. And really what, what you know, we think about is the, is the idea that it's, it's not really about whether you guys agree on everything, like two partners agree on everything. It's, it's that when you have disagreements, how often do they happen? And when you come to a resolution, is it better than what either of you are bringing to the table? And with me and Noah, almost every time that's true. And I think that that's something that's very hard to see from the outside with having you know two very strong personalities that are driving a company forward. But we've been able to make it work because of that fundamental aspect. Plus, we're, you know, Noah's a great person. And I think that he's open to you know, seeing things from other perspectives. And he brings a lot of skills that I didn't have at the time and I've, I've been working on and vice versa as well. And so it's been interesting kind of seeing our skills merge, but also, you know, know where we're where we're great at things and letting us kind of go run with things. So you guys, you started out with this with this kind of floor plan idea, and you um, you know you changed the business model. How did you get those first few clients after that? So it was largely Noah. So Noah had this network of of startups, which is actually interesting. You know, you know, our our business is not just residential, but we've actually done over 400 startup offices in New York City, 
since we started the company, think places like Venmo and Sail Through and Rent the Runway and Code Academy, and so that that he brought because of Newscred. Newscred was a company that has since got, hired us for four offices, um, and you know, he he had those relationships, and that really is what started. You know, without that, we wouldn't have had enough money to do the ba- you know to hire our first people and to really build up, find our first few designers to join the team. So you two completely bootstrapped this company, just just took revenue in and made it happen. That's right, and and it was from my experiences at Knowledge to Work and my finance days that I was able to manage the cash flow because it took ma- you know massive swings, not knowing I have any idea what clients are going to come in, you know, and also not not really having any sense of the duration of projects and the expenditures for things like product it's like you know we had many weeks where i'd be like don't buy that ten thousand dollar table because we <laughs> wait three days and then i'm going to do this in the next day and a half and then we'll wait to see if this thing happens so there's a lot of just juggling that but and initial expenses are computers your coding brain noah's design brain and that's it it's just the two of you in a small office well it was our homes our living your rooms homes. uh we didn't have an office um and I, and I think that uh, you know what what was really special about what we were building is that we just didn't need it. You know, as we got more clients, we would get more designers, and as we got, it, it kind of propagated itself. And it was both a chicken and egg problem because how do you get clients without designers? How do you you know? But it also was the one of the few ways that we could bootstrap this thing because it was generating revenue. So what what was uh, what was there a risky for was there a risky expense that you remember saying like oh boy this is a this is a leap of faith. This is our money because we're bootstrapping. You know, I can't believe we're doing this. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of those. I think, you know, uh, Sherilyn Caballero is, is, was the first person who really sat down and said, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join what you guys are doing. And looking back, I, I, I don't know what faith, you know, how she <laughs> got to the point where she could trust us to do that. But, you know, looking back, it was, you know, it was very fortuitous. And, you know, that was really the first time that we were like, we have someone that is depending on us to generate this revenue. Me and Noah, we, we didn't take any any salary for six months you know we 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 just didn't have the resources and we wanted to put everything towards growing this business and then the next big one was getting our first office space which i think at the time was 40 percent of our revenue was going to this office space Uh, and we felt that that would we needed a hub we couldn't do this out of a shared co-working space because if we are selling a product which is interior design for offices we need better have our own office Uh, and ellie reese uh, who was an amazing broker who just somehow managed to get us into this space we have no business being in this space and we made it work how long are you in that space for so it was about a year and a half. And how nice were those spaces, considering uh, your business? You know. <laughs> so it was it was a box, um, you know, twenty twenty eighth and Broadway. But a beautiful box. It, it became a beautiful box. We knocked down some walls. We redid the floors. You know, we brought in some art, some furniture. Um, it was you know the, the the first weekend we got in the space. We had, we had custom. We had taken all of these dining tables that we bought off Craigslist, which were in all sorts of dilapidated shape, and sanded them, had them sanded down and repainted to make. They look amazing when you do that because they're all unique and different. And what happened? <laughs> what happened was when they sanded it, the the sawdust got everywhere. So for four hours, Noah and I sat there and mopped with a Swiffer our new office space together because we couldn't afford to hire anyone to clean it. And we're like, this is it. This is what you know. This is what you get. And also, on top of that, there's a there's something called a good guy guarantee and so I was personally guaranteeing the payment of this space um, which I could I and I had no income I had I wasn't taking a salary 
So th this is the glamorous side of entrepreneurship that people oh, yeah. hear about mopping your own floor and, and guaranteeing uh, guaranteeing uh, oh, yeah, office that was, rent. That was a fun building because you know they had all the fake hair dealers, the fake perfume dealers. You got you know we, we saw some CD players with skip protection that I thought were extinct. Um, you know it was it was definitely and, and what happened was actually was interesting is that that area 28th and Broadway right near the Ace Hotel completely flipped during the time we were there and so by the end of it you know we were we were able to, to just get out of our lease because the, the rent had increased so much for the space. And by the end of it, we, we started to see a lot more starter people in our building, whereas when we first got there, we were like, oh, I see. So <laughs> how long were you in that space for? So I, it was about a year, year and a half. And, and, and give me the progression in that space. You start with, with just the two of you, Sherilyn and, uh, and Noah, who's, a, yeah. who's a good VFA friend, uh, Sherilyn, yeah. Sherilyn Caballero, who's, whose husband, uh, Eric, works uh, as, uh, as an executive at VFA. And she's the reason um, why I, I have been involved in VFA, and I'm so excited that she made that connection. So it's been, you know, I love VFA. <laughs> great natural plug there. Yeah. I'm glad we worked that in sincerely. It was, it was great. Uh, so so, it's, so it's, it's the two of you, Sherilyn, one or two, one or two other people? Well, mostly it was me sitting alone, because Noah was out with clients, and Sherilyn was <laughs> off somewhere, you know, okay. dealing with all the things that were happening and following Noah around, actually. Um, and so, yeah, I was sitting in this space that we couldn't afford by myself, <laughs> trying to be like, you know, there, just thinking in my head and doing the math and being like, there's no way. The number of hours we would need to sell would be so astronomical for me to even pay myself anything, you know, but at the same time balanced with this passion. And once you have that, you know, drive and you're like, I'm going to do this and nothing's going to stop me. They, they they can balance themselves out, and also you know having Noah there when I would when I would be like oh you know this isn't working Noah would be like no it's working get back to work and then the same <laughs> vice versa it's like he would be down and I would be like no Noah like we're gonna make it through this thing, and then <clears throat> Virna Johnson was our, our next person who joined us and she you know she's fantastic and just someone who cares so much about home polish and about growing and evolving as a human being and, and she's been instrumental as well so the, it was and then Stephanie Corder was also another client service person that was really the crew in inside this office um, as as the company grew so give me a sense how many cities are you in when you when you when you make the leap to bigger space when you make you know more investments in people um, you know when at, the, at that little inflection point there when you switch from or that big inflection point when you switch from uh, you move offices um, how many designers did you have on staff? Um, that type of stuff. Yeah, so you know, I'll do my best with ex with numbers because right. you know, it's it, it, it it's all been gradual. So there wasn't just one moment where everything changed. But I think you know, we were in we were in New York for a very long time in the old office, and we didn't know if this would work in other cities, right? So that was you know, that was a big first test: is can we actually do this somewhere where we have no presence? And the answer was like, yeah, we can. And so when we moved. I think we we're in you know five or six cities. We had about 20 employees, and we, we managed to find this beautiful open loft space in Flatiron at 25th and 6th. And once again, you know, we, we were like, just give it to us raw. <laughs> you know, just like take out the trash cans. Don't touch the floors. We'll do everything. It, it's in an old um, sewing company's headquarters. And so it, it's really interesting. We're on, we're on the third floor, which used to be retail. Um, and has these big windows. So, so that was really a big moment for me and Noah where we're like, whoa, you know, it's, it's almost 5,000 square feet. It just was like a, a turning point when we're like, this is a real thing now. We, you know, we, 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 we've made it to the point where we got to take this, you know, to the next level. It was really like a, a great foundation for saying, you know, we've been building this like mud hut of a business and making it work. And now we got to like scrap everything and start building a, a, a building, like a house of a business, right? 
So what, what, what is a limit for you in terms of expansion? Like wh why couldn't you be in every city at once right now? So I think for us, you know, our biggest desire, you know, the, the foundation of the company is to prove that interior design can make your life better. And you just can't do that if you're growing too fast. Um, we're growing very fast. And, you know, as some people would say too fast, but, you know, we're comfortable with our growth. But really, for us to be in every city in any every town, we wouldn't be able to deliver on our core value. And, you know, we'll have ways of getting there eventually and, and, and different opportunities for people to get a taste of what home polish means. But the brand and what we stood for was core to that. And we've always made growth decisions based on that, as opposed to seeing like how many, you know, that was actually a lot of feedback we got early on. It's like, just go to every city. What are you guys doing? You've got this thing that's working. Just go everywhere. And, you know, I think it, it was, it was we made the right decision to go slowly and to protect the brand and to make sure our clients were really happy because otherwise we would have been overextended and you know we might not have been able to deliver the experience that we wanted. So three years in, your uh, your responsibilities clearly have to have changed significantly. Are you still leading the coding charge though? So so yes. So so I'm you know we've got some amazing engineers on staff now that and but I'm working I'm doing the project management and the product management and really driving the bigger picture. It's actually been you know a recent change for me to shift away from getting behind the screen and coding which is which was a lot of fun for me but also you know it's very hard to code and then turn around and have drinks with someone influential and and try to sell they're actually very difficult you have to like shift your brain and I you know I realized that I, I just needed to bring on people who are better at it than I was and and start to diversify what I was doing and what's what does Noah do now and 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 uh, you know like what are what are the division of responsibilities today so Noah's Noah's always out and about. I mean, he is a hustler, and he's going out to events every night. He's meeting people throughout the day. He's you know he's on TV and on the radio. He's going to be in the taxi cab soon in New York City. So check that out. Um, and and you know he and and that's really where he's been spending his time. And he also works with influencers. I mean, one of the one of the best marketing channels we've had is really finding these cool people who are doing interesting things and saying, hey, do you want a new living room? Do you want a new home? design and and we've been able to really leverage our strengths um, to deliver something amazing for them and then they get to tell their story on our site and we, we bring a lot of the energy around these influencers into what we're building actually I, I, I uh, in the lead up to this interview I saw you guys I think it was you did betterments offices and, yeah uh, and I saw you on on business insider which is you know probably you know, it's in the top 100 visited sites online or something like that. Does that cause a, a massive pop? I mean, are you guys completely overwhelmed by the uh, by the traffic like something like that? Or is it just... Uh, so I'm going to... Is it just... Uh, <laughs> you're already laughing. I'll let you, I'll let you speak. Yeah, I, what I would say is I, I think that there's a myth that when you get the big story, suddenly everything changes. And granted, you know, I have a very limited sample size, but it's not the case. You know, certain stories and certain outlets do better than others. I think it depends on the demographics. But... Ultimately, you know, the the press is just one component. I think really what we've noticed is that when people come to Home Polish now, they're like, you know, how'd you hear about us? And they're like, everywhere in all caps, exclamation point. And that's really where the marketing comes into place. So it's not one news story, it's 50 news stories. Um, but yeah, one big one doesn't, it, it doesn't really do very much. But was there, was there a single inflection point, like where you kind of, you kind of were looking at the numbers and just saw like, okay, this is a, this is a real step up that just happened. And this is why it happened or has it really just been that slow sorry that I mean it sounds like a very quick uh, growth but but just kind of you know uh, you, predictable in, in, <laughs> in its rapid acceleration I, you know I wish I could say something more interesting than it's just been a slow you know a rap whatever you want to call it it's been a, a pretty 
straight trajectory towards our growth. Um, I wish I wish there was that inflection point where suddenly everything blew up. But I think part of that is the the you know the way that our business is structured. I mean, when 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 you talk about home polish, it's because you walked into a friend's space or you 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 work in a space that home polish didn't. So that takes time, you know, for all those all of those homes to be finished and then to have the you know, it's kind of like a super slow viral. It's like a turtle viral mechanism, but it's extremely strong. Because when you walk in, you know, when someone's like, "I love my space," and they're like, "How the heck did you do this?" You, you know, I know you. Like, this is, you know, did you have help? And they're like, "Home polish." It's like that's how you get a new client, right? So it's three years in, and we, and 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 I think over 200, uh, two hundred, over two hundred designers. On that's the right. And I think over a dozen cities, and four more coming online. Um, and you, are you? You're still a bootstrap company at this point. We are so you know we haven't taken outside equity funding. We, you know Noah and I put in four hundred dollars at the beginning of this thing <coughs> to, to just because actually we had to. It was the par value of the stock, um, and I, and I think that that's been <clears throat> both the bane of my existence, but also something that's let us make the right choices for the brand and the business and for each other. Because you know we have we very much believe in core values, and one of them is keeping it fun. And you know there's an an amazing group of investors out there, but it's also uh, there's some that aren't amazing. And you know they have a viewpoint on where you where the company's going to go and where you should go and how you should run your business. And no one I have just been like, you know, we we are having fun anyway. We're growing this thing extremely fast. This is you know we're not trying to do a lifestyle business, but we also don't need to you know bring on capital and just supercharge our growth. You know we've seen other companies who really get it, it's kind of like a treadmill. Like once you get on it, then you spend the money and you have to get more money and and you know if if there's missteps. It can really damage the business that you're building, and and luckily because of the the economics of home polish, we're able to maintain our independence. And that's not to say that we won't, you know, change that in the future. But I think it's got to be for the right partner. It's got to be for the right time and for the right reason. But I imagine there are VC firms knocking on your door. We we have, we've been meeting some amazing people through this process and getting a ton of insight. So so yeah, th- there's interest. It's just that, you know we we are fortunate to have the the ability to choose what the right direction is. So if you, if you could wave a magic wand right now and, and get rid of one issue in your business, what would it be? The one issue in my business. I think, I think that the, the issue is, is probably the right word because it's not an impediment, but I think it's, it's been interesting trying to gain exposure for the business. So, so the issue is we've got this awesome thing going. It's an amazing service. You know, we want everyone to try it who's in our areas and unfortunately just you know people don't know about it and also they don't they don't think about interior design uh, you know people have a lot of what we do is educate because what does it even mean to have interior design like we're inventing this process and this service and so that's one one thing that I'd love to you know kind of get a broader exposure is there and uh, maybe I'm <laughs> putting on the spot with this but is there is there another industry that has similar dynamics where you're just saying just like why hasn't someone used this home polish model and maybe you're maybe you're contemplating uh, you know jumping yeah. into that market but so so there's a lot of um, if you, if you if you're in the the local marketplace sphere and and I I say that you know home polish we don't think of ourselves necessarily as a pure marketplace um, because we have an amazing client service team, and we hold your hand through the whole process. And you know, but if you're thinking about that, there's there's a business for any kind of service that you would imagine, from like geeks that will come fix your computer to cleaners to people who park your car to people who will shop go grocery grocery shopping for you. Like they're all there. Um, it's and, and there isn't just one other industry that we've noticed um, yet. 
So when you're when you're walking along the street, are you is it, are there iterations, and you're you're constantly looking at uh, different as, as you interact with people on the street, are you thinking yourself, hmm, I wonder if this model could work with us? Uh, is, <laughs> can you turn off home polish at the end of the day? So I I mean I have to turn off home polish and then they or else I go insane. But you know I'm I'm very much focused. I mean it's it there's so many legs to what we're building because for us it's not just about the service. When someone comes to home polish, they've got. They, you know, they they have a budget to spend. They want to go buy amazing furniture, and they want to buy it from a brand they can trust, and they want to, you know, have it displayed to them in a way that that makes sense for their, you know, their aesthetic. And so, you know, all of the different aspects of what goes on in your home are things that I'm constantly thinking about. Noah's constantly thinking about is like, how can we really enrich the experience from someone? So, so really, there's so much in home polish that I just don't, you know. Don't don't think about other stuff very often. So we do we do our research on this podcast here, and uh, I'm told that from uh, from reliable sources that uh, that you have a work ethic that is absolutely incredible. And I think that came out earlier when you're talking about eye banking and doing a startup simultaneously. <laughs> How many hours do you sleep, and what do you do in that in the in the rare uh, moment of free time aside from VFA stuff? So what I will say is that since banking, I've been very very deliberate about my life. Because I think that you know the, one of the worst things that I could do is to leave a very high pressured, intense job, then go, you know, do a, a steady great job at a startup, then go do home polish, and then make it, you know, just as intense. Like that's not what I wanted. And I think that you know everyone kind of has to sit back and say, you know, when you go on this entrepreneurial journey, how do you want to live your life? And for me, because I, I know myself pretty well at this point, that's actually one of the things as an entrepreneur you find out very quickly. You know, you you are forced to confront your weaknesses and your strengths head on. Um, and so I, I know that I'm be- I'm happier when I have time to exercise, when I have eight hours of sleep, when, you know, when I take the weekends off. And actually that's something that, that we've, we've really been focused on in the culture of Home Polish is that, you know, we want, we have an unlimited vacation policy, all you care to vacation. And, you know, if someone's on vacation, I'm not bothering them, and I and, and I and I look for the same thing for myself. And so it's been a very you know very interesting trying to balance building the life I want with also this fast growing business. Um, and really, the way that I've done it is it's efficiency and it's and it's knowing what you want to do, being extraordinarily focused on prioritization, having the right tool set to make it happen. Because one of the other things I believe is that if you have the right tools, you win. You know, if you're trying two people trying to do the same thing, the one that has the better tool is going to get there first. So that that's you know. So, so I, you know, I, I think that that it, for me, it's not a badge of honor to just say I work all the time. I think it's a cop out, actually. I think uh, that's phenomenal. I think it's a great uh, a great place to uh, to wrap up with that uh, on that on that deeply personal note about uh, <laughs> about how your how your how your life has changed and and what drives you. Um, I really want to thank you, Will, for uh, for being here and being a fantastic VFA supporter and. Uh, we hope this podcast goes on for a while, so we'll have to have you back in in a, in a bit and hear about the 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 next you know major uh, major markets and steps and all the exciting things that are going on at uh, at Home Polish. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.